Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Traffic congestion is at an all-time high. Nothing ever seems to get done to alleviate the problem. Now, an interesting concept wants to go underground, inspired by other cities. Having lived in New York City, it's almost a, a subway system that is, is solely underground. Meteorologist Brent Cameron drives the issue home. Plus, something is impacting the love cycle of a certain insect. Can climate change dampen male dragonflies' dating life? Coming up, I speak to Dr. Michael Moore, an evolutionary ecologist at Washington University in St. Louis, who has the answer. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez plays Cupid in an attempt to help our beloved dragonflies. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Traffic can be aggravating to downright brutal at times. We've all seen the road rage incidents and wonder if there's a way to decongest our highways. There may be a way, but we'll have to dig for it. Brent Cameron with the story. Seven questions. Hello, I'm Brent Cameron, and today we're going to dig into a fascinating idea involving traffic and tunnels in Broward County. Joining me is Fort Lauderdale City Commissioner Ben Sorensen, who has agreed to place seven questions on the topic. Commissioner Sorensen, are you ready? I am. City officials want to build a tunnel connecting Fort Lauderdale's downtown to the beach. Now, what's the goal? Is it primarily to reduce traffic congestion? Yeah, so we're actually interested in building uh, a network of tunnels throughout Fort Lauderdale and Broward County and connecting down to Miami-Dade to explore the possibility. And so we're looking at, as you mentioned, a tunnel from downtown to the beach. We're also actively working on a tunnel that would go under the New River north and south to help facilitate commuter train traffic. Uh, so we're looking at that. And then for the, the downtown to the beach, yes, would help alleviate traffic. 17th Street going from Federal Highway to the beach is one of the most heavily trafficked uh, in our community. And so that would help alleviate it. And uh, again, if this is part of a broader network of tunnels around the city, uh, I think we can really have some great multimodal transportation. And I can think of many times in which I've been stuck in traffic after big events when you mentioned something like 17th Street there. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> Number two. Is it true that one proposal is coming from none other than Elon Musk's tunnel digging venture called The Boring Company? That is 100% correct. And is, is that idea more or less to drive one's own vehicle up for, along the tunnel, or is that for actually using other vehicles and more of a transit system? Great question. So how I kind of uh, think about this is it's almost, and having lived in New York City, it's almost a, a subway system that is, is solely underground. So you don't use your own vehicle on a subway system. It's proprietary vehicles. So this would be proprietary, uh, boring company vehicles, Tesla cars uh, that would run in a closed loop system as a 
type of public transportation for three or four dollars, uh, bringing folks from one part of the city to another. Number three, what are some of the biggest obstacles the city could face building the, this type of infrastructure? We're just in the initial stages of evaluating this. So it would take a full thorough environmental analysis, uh, understanding the what's below the surface from a kind of ecological standpoint, um, also navigating all the types of infrastructure, building footings and so forth that are under, under, underneath the uh, surface and as well as um, making sure that this is possible in a cost efficient way. So those are all the things that we're looking at. And number four, where are you at this stage in the project? We're just the initial evaluation of this uh, proposal and it just initially beginning to evaluate the, what the costs would be, the environmental impact, all of those. So I'd say very early on in, in the analysis of this. Sure. Are you modeling it after a, a certain city? Las Vegas has been the city where the Boring Company has done a lot of work in starting to build the tunnels. And so we've uh, spent some time evaluating their tunnel system there that the Boring Company has done. Number five, what feedback are you getting so far from both engineers and also the general public? Are you getting support? Yes, there's a great deal of excitement, interest, wanting to hear more, wanting to understand more. The Boring Company's engineers are doing the majority of the engineering analysis at this point. So far, they, they see this as, as a very possible and, and uh, probable project for them to do. And, and public are very interested in, in the city of Fort Lauderdale. And they're also want to hear more about the cost, environmental impact, and so forth. So there'll, there'll be a lot of work ahead to evaluate. Number six, what kind of funding is necessary to get the project off the ground, or in this case, under the ground? <laughs> um, to be determined. So as they do the continued environmental assessment and so forth, they're going to uh, you know, better be able to understand cost and so forth. So that's, that's to be determined. And I would imagine actual funding for this would need to come from a variety of sources, federal, state, and so forth. So there'd, there'd be a host of funding options that would be explored. And number seven, what's the potential timeline for a project of this sort? Is it something that theoretically could be completed in the next five years or 10 years? I think if the city uh, decides this is what they'd like to do and the boring company uh, sees the feasibility and so forth, yeah, I think this could be done within, I'd say, three to four years max. All right. So there you have it. It's a potential big dig. And yes, a big deal. We thank you, Commissioner Ben Sorensen, for helping really shed the light on the subject and for your hard work and commitment uh, to bring this to the city of Fort Lauderdale. Any last words? No, stay tuned for more innovative solutions coming out of the city of Fort Lauderdale. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. Coming up next... Climate change is taking a toll on dragonflies' dating habits. Can we help? Vivian Gonzalez with that story when we return. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station 7 News. We love to see dragonflies hovering around in our backyards. They are a very beneficial and integral part of our ecosystem. But 
something is taking the spark out of their love life. What is it? Here's Vivian Gonzalez. Climate change. As the warming of the world increases, so will the frequency and intensity of weather extremes. Impacts related to climate change are definitely evident in human health, agriculture, and food security, water supply, transportation, energy, and ecosystems. So many species are the building blocks of ecosystems, and climate change may be responsible for robbing male dragonfly wings of their dark spots. To talk about this find, we have Dr. Michael Moore, an evolutionary ecologist from Washington University in St. Louis, who is using dragonflies to investigate how they are evolving and adapting to climate changes. Thank you for joining us in the Weather or Not podcast. We know how an ecosystem is a geographic area where plants, animals, and other organisms, as well as weather and landscape, work together to form a bubble of life. And there are different types of ecosystems. Can you tell us why are dragonflies important in the ecosystem? Sure, yeah. So dragonflies play a, a few different important roles. And so perhaps your listeners aren't, aren't necessarily aware about the life cycles of dragonflies. So I'll, I'll quickly explain that. Um, of course. So dra dragonflies have life cycles that are kind of like frogs. So they start out in the water um, and they have this kind of um, water living sort of juvenile stage, kind of like a tadpole. And then they undergo a metamorphosis and they become these kind of winged aerial adults uh, that you see flying around at ponds and streams. And so as adults, they're really important uh, sort of predators of all kinds of small insects. And they also are a really important um, sort of prey source for larger, for larger critters like birds and, and some, some mammals even. Um, but in the in the larval stage, and in, in the when they're in the water still, they uh, they're these really important predators of all kinds of small little bugs and things. And so they they actually their role as predators is is really important to help kind of stabilize and maintain kind of healthy ecosystem function in the ponds and streams that they live in when they're growing up. So they're they're these really important uh, kind of. Um, they had this kind of really important sort of role as predators in, in uh, ecosystems. And they've been around for a very long time, right? That's right. Yeah. So um, it's really hard to reconstruct how, how old dragonflies actually are. Um, but it, our most, our best current estimate for sort of the closest relative to dragonflies that we have today suggests that they probably originated about 200 million years ago. So to put that in some context, that's, uh, long before there were sort of iconic dinosaurs like Triceratops or Tyrannosaurus sort of roaming around. These, these, are, very, these are very old animals that, um, that haven't really changed all that much uh, in, the, in the last 200 million years, despite all of these really remarkable changes that the Earth has sort of gone through. Can you tell us what is the, the purpose of a male dragonfly's dark spots on the wings? Yeah, definitely. So Dragonflies uh, and and they're closely related to sort of group damselflies, which look like dragonflies, but they're sort of smaller and skinnier. They um, they produce this dark pigmentation on their wings, and so some of my research and research really that dates back uh, all the way into the 1970s indicates that the males of the of 
damselflies and dragonflies use this dark pigmentation on their wings to kind of attract uh, mates and intimidate rivals. So males that have more of this coloration are often sort of seen as kind of more attractive to females. And also we know that males uh, tend to be uh, sort of intimidated by other males that have a lot of this wing coloration. So it's really important. Uh, this, this coloration is really important for how males are able to kind of um, sort of make those reproductive interactions work between males and, and females and, and also ensure that they're able to get the chance to even uh, kind of court a female if, if she does happen to show up. And how do scientists like yourself attract the variability and evolution of dragonfly species? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, so one, one sort of technique that we can use is by comparing kind of different types of dragonfly species uh, and looking at sort of what, where their geographic range is, whether they kind of live, you know, for instance, in, in our research, we looked at whether they live kind of in the American Southwest or the American South or whether they live kind of up in Canada or even up in Alaska. And so then we can compare kind of the um, you know, we can use these sorts of models uh, that incorporate the information about the shared evolutionary history of different dragonfly species, and we can sort of look for correlations between uh, kind of the climatic relationship, the climatic factors uh, in the geographic range that they experience, and other traits that they have. So in our case, we were interested in uh, kind of this wing coloration and sort of correlations between the wing coloration and uh, sort of the temperature that they experience in their geographic range. Another approach that we used in this study um, is we didn't just look uh, across a whole bunch of different species, we also looked within species. And so one thing that we did is we looked at uh, populations of a given species that live in kind of warm parts of the species geographic range, and we compared those to populations of the same species that live uh, in, in um, and other parts of the species range. And then we can kind of compare, um, we can compare the sort of size of the coloration on the wing or shape or all these other sort of different things. And so we use that approach as well. And then the final way that we can actually look at kind of the patterns of evolution is by actually sort of looking through time. And so what one, one really cool thing about our study is we were actually able to document changes uh, in the wing coloration of these dragonflies from one year to the next. And so what we were actually able to do is using uh, images that were taken uh, for by citizen scientists and uploaded to this really great citizen science platform called iNaturalist, we were able to look from one year to the next and we we're actually able to track in warmer years do we see that dragonflies have sort of more coloration or less coloration than dragonflies of the same species do in, in cold years. And okay, so we know that black, like darker colors tend to absorb sunlight and white lighter colors are more reflective. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think the appearance and mating patterns of dragonflies will change as the earth keeps just getting warmer over the years? That's right. So our research shows that the dragonflies tend to be losing some of their wing coloration uh, in, in sort of uh, as, the war, as the earth is getting warmer. And uh, we know from not only our work, but from other, uh, some other research labs around the world that this might be an important way that organisms respond to our warming climate. 
What we don't yet know is how, you know, if the males are kind of losing these traits that make them attractive to females, we don't yet know very much about how the females are going to respond. It could be that the females just sort of very quickly figure out like, oh, this is, you know, the males on average have sort of less coloration, but I can still sort of pick the right male that I should try to mate with. But it's also possible that the females just totally, the, the females just totally lose their ability to discern which, which male is going to help them produce the best offspring. And so we don't yet know what the consequences of these shifts in um, these sort of evolutionary shifts in the wing coloration of the dragonflies and other animals will be yet. But there is some cause for concern that it could actually kind of disrupt the, the natural mating systems of a lot of animals. Now, do you think that male dragonfly species adapting to the rapid warming be enough for them to survive as a whole? That's a great question. That's another thing that we, we don't know yet. So that's actually what my colleagues and I are starting to look at now. Um, like, it's very likely that dragonflies will need to adapt in a whole bunch of different ways. And what's exciting about our most recent research is that we've shown that these reproductive traits are going to be an important component of that. But there's likely to be other important components in terms of maybe they're able, maybe they evolve to be able to tolerate more heat. Maybe they evolve uh, to kind of shift the time of year that they're, uh, they're breeding in. We don't yet know yet. Um, we also don't yet know whether any kind of evolutionary shifts that or that these dragonflies undergo as our climate warms, we don't yet know whether those those shifts are going to be fast enough to keep pace with the rate at which our climate is changing. And so these are all really big questions that my research team uh, and I are, are looking into now. And hopefully we'll have uh, some exciting, exciting answers on that uh, in the not so distant future. And out of curiosity, why do you think females aren't adapting or evolving where the climate is hotter? Like, why aren't they responding to the changes in the climate in the same way? It's a really great question. And that's another, it's one of those things that we, we thought was a possibility, but we weren't sure. Um, and we had some ideas why that might be, but we don't yet know. So one reason is that when, for example, when you are out kind of uh, walking around perhaps near a pond or lake or something, and you see a bunch of dragonflies, those are predominantly the males. So typically the males spend most of their day kind of out in the hot sun, trying to defend reproductive territory so that if a female does show up, they'll be able to have an opportunity to sort of uh, court her. In contrast, the females tend to live mostly, uh, tend to spend most of their day in kind of the surrounding forest or in meadows that are a lot cooler than right on the right on the pond or stream. And the the reason for that is that they're mostly just kind of uh, they spend most of their day sort of eating and trying to get enough resources to produce a, a large uh, a large set of eggs. And what we think is likely going on is that the female, because the females use sort of cooler parts of the habitat, um, that they're not uh, encountering these really extreme temperatures that make that dark coloration particularly likely to cause them to overheat. Um, but we don't yet know that. And but what's really exciting about this is that um, is that we often make this assumption that males and females are going to respond to climate change in exactly the same way. Uh, and what our research indicates is that that's, that's really not the case. And, we need, and it makes sense because males and females of a species often have to do different things in order to help the species persist in its habitat. 
And what our research really, I think, shows quite definitively is that we really need to start thinking uh, a lot more about what those differences are and how, how to incorporate those differences uh, when we think about trying to conserve species and, and manage their populations going forward. And that, and that leads into my next question. Why is it important to learn how different species react to climate change, really? Absolutely. So um, the, the climate change is going to be one of the big, the big conservation issues going forward. And not every species is going to be able to do exactly the same thing. So some species will be able to, um, some species might be able to move their ranges further north so they can kind of track the cooler temperatures. Some species might be able to uh, kind of uh, change when they're doing different things in their life cycle, perhaps, you know, they change when they migrate or something like that. And some species are going to have to deal with the warming climate because they're not going to be able to move for change the time of year. And so research like ours is really important for helping people understand, uh, especially policymakers and folks that are in charge of managing populations and, and ecosystems, they, it's really important to help uh, those folks understand the um, you know, the, the way that, the way, help those folks understand the way that, um, that is going to best help the species um, that live in those habitats sort of persist, persist long-term. Um, without understanding the differences in the species, we might end up managing, you know, an ecosystem for one kind of way that an organism uh, responds, but some other plants and animals might sort of have to do entirely different things. And so we just need to understand the diversity of ways that plants and animals are going to respond to our, our warming climate. Now, what do you think can be done? Like what efforts can be made to conserve the species and mitigate the impacts of climate change? Uh, a really important thing is that, is that we need to make sure that we have lots of ponds and streams that remain kind of intact and that when we're sort of setting up conservation areas around ponds and streams that we're not just, uh, that we're not just managing the, the pond and stream itself. We also need to make sure that there's a, a nice buffer of forest kind of around those, uh, around those ponds and streams so that the dragonflies have places to retreat to uh, when it gets too hot. We also need to make sure that those ponds and streams don't get, um, don't themselves uh, get too hot from, in addition to just sort of the air temperature, but things like, um, you know, decomposition. So we don't want to just dump a bunch of plant material into ponds and streams because those things in combination with the warmer air temperatures are going to cause the ponds and streams to, to decrease the amount of oxygen that they have. And that's going to be really detrimental to the, the larvae, um, the sort of the aquatic uh, juvenile stage of the dragonflies. So, you know, thinking forward, um, I think the biggest thing is making sure that we manage sort of the areas around the wetlands that dragonflies live in to make sure that we're preserving not just the aquatic area, but also the surrounding area and making sure that there's, there's lots of different types of habitats uh, that would be natural around those kinds of wetlands that, that remain uh, for the dragonflies. And this is a little bit more of a personal question, but what sure. do you hope will come out of your research? Yeah, so I think I think a few a few big takeaways. So the first thing is that you know there's this big question in all of biology about how animals kind of adapt to living in different climates, and that that question is especially pertinent right now because of the ongoing climate crisis. 
And you know, researchers to date have done a really fantastic job of trying to understand sort of the ways the organisms respond uh, with sort of traits that are involved in helping them survive in a habitat. But of course, organisms don't just need to survive in order to persist in a particular place. They also need to be able to find mates and reproduce in many cases. And so what I hope that our research really highlights is that we need to also consider these traits that are involved in mating when we think about how organisms respond uh, to climates and how they will respond to the climates of the future. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I hope people get out of this research, uh, like I mentioned before, is that we often assume that males and females respond in quite similar ways to the climate. And our research indicates that that's really not the case. Oftentimes the females of, a, of the same species as the males are doing totally different things than those males. And in some cases, they're even responding in completely the opposite way. And so what I hope our research uh, helps, helps clarify in people's minds is that males and females often need to do different things uh, in order for a species to persist. And so they're gonna often respond in different ways to uh, our rapidly warming climate. And so we need to account for those differences between males and females. And the final thing that I hope that people are sort of take away from this research is that the, despite the, the fact that these dragonflies are this ancient organism that has persisted through you know, a meteor striking the earth and wiping out 75% of the animals here and, you know, have, has sort of survived despite the fact that the, the birds uh, evolved and are sort of specialized on trying to hunt them, you know, that the human, the human activities are really, are really actually for the first time sort of starting to threaten dragonflies. And, and it's not just sort of the things that we're showing with these changes in the climate, but we also know from other research that the ways that we are um, kind of dumping chemicals into streams and wetlands, uh, many of those are quite toxic, even to dragonflies, even to this really robust uh, organism. And we know things like kind of, you know, think about the droughts out west right now, where these large water bodies that have sort of stood there for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of years are starting to dry. And you know, we, that, that's going to cut off a, a, a critical portion of this, this really, really cool animal's life cycle. And I think that, I hope that the fact that it's, you know, that what I hope that people take away from all of this is that, is that even, even the hardiest animals that, that some of that the earth has ever seen are, are starting to respond in quite detrimental ways to climate change and some of the other things that humans are doing to the planet. And I hope I hope that that serves as sort of a wake-up call that that the changes to the environment are not trivial and they're not just hurting sort of sensitive animals. They're also starting to hurt some of the hardiest animals that the earth has ever seen. Well, hopefully we can come up with a collective way and effort to be able to slow down the warming and be able to preserve this species that has been around for so, so long and has survived so many global apocalypses over and over and over. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Moore, for the Weather or Not. I'm meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. Thank you, Vivian. Next week on Weather or Not, we know the wind scale ramps up to a Category 5 system but hurricanes seem to be getting stronger. Is there a need for a Category 6? 
if you look at the intensity categories in the Sapphire Simpson scale, if you look and you look at the wind speeds about every 20 miles per hour or so, you know, you jump up to another category. So if you extrapolated that out, uh, you, you might see we would have another, you know, like put a category six at wind speed starting around 180 or something like that, 185 maybe. We'll have the answer on our next edition of Whether or Not, which drops October 5th. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and of course live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.